Good morning. This is the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast. I'm your host, Philip Coover, uh, partner in Ice Miller's Real Estate Practice Group. Today, we have a great guest. We have Mike Drew, one of the founding principles of structured development. Mike, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Phil. Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, no, we're, we're extremely happy to have you. So, Mike, we have lots to talk about. You've got uh, 40 years of building and uh, doing construction in Chicago, so there's there's a lot for us to, to cover. Won't get to all of it today, but, um, you know, we're just really happy to have somebody on here with uh, your expertise and experiences developing in Chicago. Why don't you tell us a little bit about structured development? Sure, thank you. Um, uh, structured development was uh, was formed in the year 2000. Uh, my partner, Daniel Lucas, is a former practicing attorney, uh, and uh, he was, uh, at the time, I believe, working for uh, SafeEarth uh, and doing uh, my uh, real estate transactions. Uh, I was primarily a uh, general contractor doing um, a fair amount of city of Chicago and uh, public utility work. And I had uh, become tired of the process, realizing that while there are some excellent uh, general contractors, uh, uh, if that's not your sole focus, it's very difficult to, uh, to be profitable in that business. It's very low margin, high risk. Um, so I was looking to get out of that and get into development full time. My partner, Dan, on the other hand, was uh, doing the practicing corporate attorney uh, with uh, that unmanageable amount of uh, billable hours you guys have to generate to, to keep the partners happy. And so I approached him and said, look, why don't you leave that and I'll uh, exit the construction industry and we'll do development full-time. That was in 2000, and uh, we've had a pretty good uh, 22-year run uh, uh, since that, uh, with most of our development being uh, in and around the Clybourne Corridor. Uh, we did the um, New City development, uh, the British School, a number of other retail uh, developments in the area, Kendall College to the south, and uh, we're currently working on uh, the Big Deal project, Big Deal being uh, B-I-G-D-E-A-H-L. The Rosemary and David Deal were the sellers of the property, uh, so we've kept the name. People think it's uh, my ego talking, but it is the Deal, D-E-A-H-L, uh, that is going to be about a $250 million development roughly 470 residential units. Uh, we've completed the first phase, which is uh, a climbing gym, uh, movement climbing gym that's open at the corner of Dayton and Blackhawk. And we're currently under construction with 34 unit affordable condominium building and a 126 unit uh, co-living building. And we are partnering with White Oak Realty on the construction of a uh, 327-unit market-rate uh, rental tower located on Kingsbury. Uh, that's fantastic. So much to ask you about that. I I know the corner of Dayton and Blackhawk well. I haven't watched a lot of college football at a bar called Sully's. Yep, Sully's is still there, yes. <laughs> um, first of all, I love the story of you and Dan partnering up, as you may or may not realize, you kind of alluded to us practicing lawyers. Uh, 
that's like a nursery story. That's like a bedtime story to me of like escaping the law to to go into something else. It's just like I think every real estate lawyer that works with developer clients has this like a dream of that being the alternative version of their life. So uh, doesn't it, Phil? Doesn't it uh, have something to do with the uh, the term practicing attorney? When are you going to quit practicing? Right, <laughs> get it right. right. right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. One of these days, I'll stop practicing and be ready to go. I mean, there's so much to talk about here, especially that's an interesting area, just North and Clyburn and that surrounding community. Um, it's totally different than it was 20 years ago when I first moved to Chicago. Out of curiosity, why has that been such a major focus uh, for your group? Well, uh, it's it's interesting that you, you recognize that. The area changed a lot um, over the last uh, two, three decades. It was, a lot of people don't realize, it is the second largest retail shopping district in the city of Chicago behind Michigan Avenue. And no real surprise in, in when you look at the surrounding demographics, Lincoln Park, uh, Bucktown, uh, Wicker Park, all surround that Clybourne corridor. And those people typically would not shop at Michigan Avenue. That's, that's a tourist shopping area. So it became the... Uh, location of uh, many of the top retailers in the area and their best performing stores uh, because people would shop there uh, uh, so they didn't have to drive out to Old Orchard or or somewhere else. So it built a uh, an identity as a very successful retail area. The particular site, uh, Big Deal, was located in what had been designated as a buffer zone to um, the existing manufacturing district that was located on Goose Island. And what really jump-started things uh, was the um, implementation uh, of the Industrial Corridor Modernization Plan, which uh, had um, turned uh, on its head a standing policy to protect and preserve uh, manufacturing and in doing that changed in zoning, it opened up 760 acres of land that had been restricted for manufacturing back from the days when the river was the primary source of transportation for the tanneries and the smelters and the, uh, the heavy smokestack industries that were located there that needed protection from encroachment from the coming uh, residential uh, push from the east. In doing that uh, rezoning, what happened then is you have Lincoln Yards on the north end, you have Tribune and the Greyhound site on the south end of that uh, North Branch corridor, and the Big Deal site is located uh, directly in the center of it. So that allowed us to do residential and mixed use, and when you talk about the basics of a... uh, Uh, what they call smart communities, Uh, the Big Deal site uh, fits the bill perfectly. It it has abundant retail. It has, for instance, two grocery stores. It has Whole Foods directly across the street, Mariano's just a block to the east. Uh, It has entertainment. It has everything that a community needs to support residential, but it didn't have residential. So other than the Sono uh, project, which was previously zoned uh, before the change, that's the only residential in that neighborhood. So 
we think it's ideal for uh, a residential development, and um, that's why we went about it when the uh, zoning opened up to allow it. Yeah, no, the only you know real residential is as you kind of move to the north, you have Lincoln Park, which isn't um, you know, is there's a lot of townhomes and single family homes, but you don't have the density and a lot of uh, young professionals don't have the ability to buy a you know a house in Lincoln Park. So you, it, yeah, there's tons of people right there that want to be in that area. And I, I, you know, you also mentioned that Sterling Bay has their Lincoln Yards project. There's the Morton Salt project. I imagine, you know, you guys probably don't even view that as a competitive development. It's probably a rising tide lifts all boats situation where you're bringing all of these people to the area and it's good for your, your retail businesses. It's good for them to have housing. It's good for, there's jobs there with CH Robinson and, you know, all the other companies that are also headquartered there i imagine it's just um it, it's a good thing that there's so much activity in the area yeah, that is exactly right that um and i think the city recognized it when they when they implemented this change that growth is good unfortunately in in recent years it seems as if the development community has uh has become vilified uh and become the the villains um uh, the 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 term used is uh, the displacement uh, through gentrification, and uh, while there's certainly some examples of that, I fear that the policies uh, that are largely driving um, public policy now is based on that premise that that the developers are the ones that that create all of uh, all of the ills, and and in doing so, um, if you cut off development. And you don't properly present the uh, incentives to addressing the issues, then you don't have a expansion of the tax base. You have a shrinking expansion. You have uh, something where an ever increasing tax base falls on, or tax bill falls on a smaller group of property owners, and that is not good for the city. That being said, one of the biggest challenges that uh, that the city faces is um, affordable housing. And you had indicated there's a lot of people looking for housing. It is a ever increasing cost of, of housing uh, based on supply side, inflationary uh, uh, prospects, uh, and uh, the cost of quite frankly, complying with um, ARO conditions uh, that are part of uh, the cost of development. Yeah, those and so talk about the ARO requirements. That's the affordable housing requirements that the city of Chicago has uh, when you do a development. So you give people a little bit of context on what that means to you, but also, you know, I think we'd love to hear about the Harrison Row townhomes and how you're using that project in the East Garfield Park area uh, to satisfy the ARO uh, requirements because that's also a really, uh, really cool project that you're working on. Yeah. Um, so a little context, and you've had previous guests on that have uh, have talked about uh, affordable housing and the challenges that uh, that the country faces, uh, not just the city of Chicago. But a little context: uh, um, everyone acknowledges that that there's a challenge uh, that the city faces of a shortage of affordable housing. We're short anywhere from uh, 150 to 250 thousand housing units 
that are are not affordable for people that need them. So there is a problem there. And the question is, is how to address that. Uh, I think I listened to your podcast with Matt uh, uh, from um, uh, Habitat, and he was talking about, you know, what has happened since the 80s with the institution of of low-income tax credits, uh, tax policy that has created, uh, oh, I think somewhere close to 2 million units across the nation. But the problem with that uh, program is the cost of delivering those units is is anything but affordable. Um, there are so many different components of a capital stack for a typical uh, low-income housing affordable development that uh, you end up with soft costs uh, exceeding uh, 40% of the total uh, construction costs. Um, so a typical uh, low-income affordable unit will cost anywhere from uh, $400,000 to $500,000 for a unit that might rent for 30% of market rental. So that requires subsidies. The other tool for addressing affordable is, um, is the ARO, which is the inclusionary zoning policy where um, the market rate developers uh, in exchange for uh, zoning um, assistance or uh, uh, some other change are required to provide a percentage of the units to be affordable. And the definition varies within the ordinance, uh, but typically it's uh, that you will provide 20% of all units built will be affordable and will be rented at a um, at a rental rate that uh, is affordable to someone making 60% of the average median income. Now, <clears throat> what that means is on a typical 100-unit apartment tower, the cost of a market rate unit is identical to the cost of an affordable unit. The only difference is that the value of the market rate unit is significantly higher because the affordable unit is rented at a third of the market rate rents, and that's in perpetuity. So you've got the same cost, but you're limiting the value, and that leads to obvious uh, constraints on financing, on project pro formas. Uh, And as that percentage goes up, it it gets to a point where the project is economically infeasible. You won't get the uh, institutional investment, the lending, because the numbers don't work. <clears throat> so during uh, the the life of the ARO, there's, it's been questionable as to how successful it's been and how many units it's actually produced. And so it's it's been tweaked, and recently they've come out with a new uh, a new concept that has addressed a lot of the issues uh, related to the arrow, like restricted radius, inclusionary, meaning uh, that uh, they should be, a resident should be able to stay in the neighborhood despite uh, a gentrification or redevelopment that, that raises the rents all around them. And so that policy has led to some successes in in the, the arrow and some shortfalls, uh, but the city views it as just one tool towards addressing this affordable shortage. What we did on Big Deal is we identified that uh, that 
had we been held to the uh, standards of a 60% AMI, the uh, project would have been infeasible. We could not have built and provided 20% um, of the some 470 units um, as affordable. Uh, it just wouldn't pencil out. But what we did notice was that, that one of the um, goals of the city's housing policy was to encourage the affordable uh, home ownership. That's one of their uh, top goals. And um, so we took that approach and coupled with the the recognition of the unintended consequence of the ARO, which said that uh, as you provide a market rate unit, you have to provide an identical um, ARO unit. The market was producing studios and one bedrooms. The ARO, therefore, were getting a preponderance of studios and one bedrooms. What was left out was any family housing. Yeah. You could not afford to deliver, for instance, a three-bedroom or four-bedroom unit uh, because the difference in the value of that unit due to the restricted rent was so great, it just wouldn't, uh, you couldn't pencil out. <clears throat> but the city recognized that, and um, we approached them and said, we'd like to provide um, all three-bedroom and four-bedroom units, and we would like to... Uh, sell those at the, the AMI uh, restricted levels uh, within the program as the city has published it. And that program is managed by Chicago Community Land Trust, a uh, division of the Department of Housing that basically keeps all of these homes in their portfolio and keeps them affordable for a minimum of 30 years of ownership. They provide the ability for um, a workforce family to buy uh, a unit for their first time, a first time home ownership. They get a leg up on equity. They uh, get the benefits of, of home ownership, uh, depreciation, tax benefits, uh, all the things that come with home ownership. And they're able to live in a newly constructed three-bedroom, two-bath, uh, bath-and-a-half, uh, nice family homes. And so what we did on the Big Deal project was the Department of Housing worked with us uh, to establish uh, the standards and agreed to allow us to put 34 three- and four-bedroom condominiums in its own building on the Big Deal site and these will be restricted to um, a sales price of between $350,000 and $366,000. They will include a secured uh, indoor parking space. They'll be located on the Big Deal site adjacent to a um, half-acre park that we are, are building, and they will come with all the amenities that a market-rate condominium uh, building would have. So we're very excited about that. In addition to that, we are producing um, 40 three-bedroom, two-bath townhomes at Harrison and Francisco in the west side of the 27th Ward and the pilot zone as included in the ARO. And those are selling for, for $229,000 to $245,000 to, again, typically workforce families. Part of the problem that the ARO doesn't really address is that the, the term affordable housing covers a wide, wide range of incomes. 
most often people think of affordable housing as um, those people being uh, 30% or less income that, that need, need housing. But in fact, what is missing is the uh, available housing for, for workforce. So the housing market, as an example, will produce typically luxury housing, which uh, can um, and is being sold for up to $1,000 a square foot, as an example, and there's a market for that. The other extreme is the, the affordable housing, which could be for people at a 30% income level or up to 60%, uh, but those those developments require um, public funding and public subsidies. What's missing in the middle is kind of the forgotten people, and that's the workforce housing. If you're a family of uh, uh, three to five, you can't find a, a, a suitable, or you have difficulty finding suitable uh, living space for your family. You're, you don't make enough to qualify for luxury housing, and it's not being produced, and you make too much to qualify for a subsidized. So if you're a if you're a, a policeman, if you're a firefighter, if you're a, a public school teacher, and you've got a family, where do you find your housing? And that is every bit as big a challenge that falls within that affordable housing challenge or shortage as it is on the other extreme. So. Um, we're excited that we think this solution, it not only made economic sense to provide it, it's also exciting in that when we're completed with it, there will be 70 families. We'll have about a, uh, uh, a $12 million investment in East Garfield Park that will create a community of 40-some homeowners there at that, at that neighborhood. And um, at Big Deal, you'll be providing uh, extremely attractive, affordable condominiums within a neighborhood that is already gentrified and very desirable for those uh, people that I just mentioned, that workforce uh, uh, group of uh, families. Well, thank you very much for running us through that. I was simply the, the greatest explanation of the ARO and how it operates and how you think about it and approached it that uh, I've ever heard. You know, I, I would encourage anyone who's spending hours of time going through the statute to try to figure out what it means to just listen to Mike's um, presentation there over the last few minutes. So those are really interesting projects uh, with big deal residences the, and the townhomes. I think it's really interesting how you, you approached it. Um, you know, I'm going to transition gears just for a little bit because I really, when we last talked, just enjoyed hearing about your background in construction and some of the projects that you've done over the years for the city, including, you know, the great flood uh, that yeah. we had in Chicago probably 30 years ago or so now. And, um, you know, so tell us a little bit about just your background and, and the projects you've done. I know you've been involved with City Hall, as well as many other projects in the city. Yeah, sure. We, um, my background, uh, as I said, was was in construction. My father started uh, the business, and uh, as I moved into it, I became more interested and more involved in doing uh, uh, public construction, uh, primarily in the city of Chicago. So we 
would do a, a lot of interesting uh, projects, uh, interesting and varying. Uh, you mentioned City Hall. We, uh, we refurbished and replaced the entrance doors at City Hall, the gold doors. Uh, we uh, renovated the uh, uh, and refinished all of the marble on the county side. So you see the polished marble on the various floors. We did that. We, uh, we connected, we put a connecting tunnel between the uh, State of Illinois building and City Hall underneath Randolph Street. So that connection when you walk over to uh, the State of Illinois building, uh, uh, we installed that uh, as well as one link uh, uh, along Randolph Street. Um, so we tended to do um, some underground and one of the one of the more interesting projects, as I mentioned to you, was um, uh, we were doing a, a joint venture a deep tunnel project for um, Commonwealth Edison, where we, we dropped uh, down 125 feet on one side of the river, the west side of the river at Taylor Street, and, um, and we drilled a thousand foot tunnel to the uh, east side of the street where the drop shaft uh, came up on um, Well Street at, at Polk. And we tied into the Chicago freight tunnel system, which um, a lot of people didn't know, certainly didn't know anything about it until uh, until the, the great flood and people couldn't understand how could, how could a whole entire city of Chicago flood. Well, they had, um, within the sub-basements and under the loop, as well as all the way down to where I mentioned those drop shafts, uh, um, so to a thousand south, they had freight tunnels that had been built in the late 1800s by a uh, consortium of uh, Chicago aldermen, and they were intended to uh, be a profit-making venture where they would haul coal to the sub-basements of these structures and haul trash out. Now, these things weren't big. They were, uh, you could you could touch each side of them when you held your hands out, but you could stand up in them. But they had rails in them and they would, ha- they would haul these, uh, uh, this material in and out. Well, what happened over time was that the, uh, the city recognized these tunnels as a potential source of revenue and they started leasing them out to fiber optic companies. And uh, so they were running fiber optic throughout these tunnels, which tied into all the sub-basements so they could power all of these uh, the buildings in the entire city of Chicago without tearing up the streets and without uh, uh, the costs associated with that. So <clears throat> at one time, there were well over 300 electricians in there running, running these cables through these lines. Well, unrelated, the city of Chicago had a contract um, to uh, remove and reinstall the dolphin piles. Now, dolphin piles are the structures that you see at the edge of each bridge in the water where they're timber piles with a, with a metal cap on top of them, and they keep the, the barges and boats and stuff from ramming into the bridges and damaging them, so they're called dolphin. They collapse or rot out over time, so the city had a contract to remove and reinstall these. <clears throat> we were second bidder to Great Lakes Dredge and Dock on that, and uh, as they say, sometimes the best jobs are the ones that, that get away, right, that you never do, because what happened was Great Lakes started this project, 
And when they got to the bridge at at Kinsey, uh, it's a bascule bridge, uh, they sometime over the past years, the city had renovated the bridge house and it stuck out too far for them to get their extractor out over the piles to remove them. They asked the superintendent if they could uh, just cut the existing piles off below the waterline and drive new piles right next to it. And, you know, seemingly uh, innocent decision created the issue with the flood in that they started to drive the piles. They were hitting something hard, but nobody had looked at the plans which showed a freight tunnel underneath that area. And so they cracked the wall of the freight tunnel. Now this was identified some months before the breach uh, because there was silt in the bottom of the freight tunnel. And uh, there was a inspector who called that to the attention, but they didn't think that the price that they had received from contractors, the bulkhead, that section uh, was fair. Uh, it was uh, several hundred thousand and they thought it should be less than 20,000. So I had an appointment on a Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock to uh, go down there and give them a price, uh, a third price yeah. bulkheading this off. And wouldn't you know, Monday at about 4 a.m., the tunnel collapsed and they filled uh, all of the, the loop was filled, flooded the sub-basements. There were fish in them in the merchandise mart. Uh, and we were entering our project at um, Polk and Taylor at about 7.15, I'm sorry, maybe a quarter to seven to go down into the tunnel and we could hear water rushing upstream on the freight tunnel. And uh, by nine o'clock, our tunnel was completely filled, 125 foot by 1,000 foot. It was completely filled uh, and it, it had breached up by the Merchandise Mart uh, or the Sun-Times building up there. So it, it told you, uh, you know, how much water had come and how quickly but what people don't realize is that had that happened any time during the workday, it probably would have been the largest loss of human life uh, ever in the city of Chicago because you never would have gotten out of those tunnels. You couldn't have gotten to an exit. And uh, had the, it happened any time during the workday, it would have been disastrous. So um, that's kind of one of those overlooked things that uh, is pretty... Uh, is pretty interesting that I was um, exposed to. But as I told um, Phil when I spoke to him earlier, I, I, I said, I look back on that and, and realized that had I taken that contract and been down there when, uh, when that thing broke, is I, I probably would have been more infamous than Mrs. O'Leary's cow was since they would have blamed the flood on me. So um, that, was a, that was a lucky one to, uh, to miss. So... Uh, but I've learned a lot uh, as a general contractor doing a lot of interesting projects in the city of Chicago. We have a lot of, uh, a lot of infrastructure in the city, uh, a lot of uh, things that people don't know goes on in the city uh, below the ground uh, they're not aware of. And um, it's just been an interesting, uh, an interesting career. I realized as I said back in 2000, that I was um, better uh, suited to negotiate and buy construction services than to sell them or provide them. Uh, because of my background, I uh, 
I am able to uh, be a pretty good buyer of construction services, whether it be provided by uh, Power, uh, uh, McHugh, uh, Walsh, uh, um, or some of the smaller contractors that we use on, on other projects. So um, I think it's a good use of my skills. Mike, thanks for telling that tale. Thank God you're you're here to tell the tale today. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, and all of your 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 men that uh, could have been down there if it happened during the work day. Yep. Um, how did they get the water? Like, I would think I was in high school when that happened because I remember watching the news. I remember my parents talking about it. This was like in the 90s, right? Yeah, it was. It was, I think it was in the early 90s. I can't remember the exact date. Um, how'd they get the water out? Well, uh, they ultimately, if you recall, um, you were working downtown at the time, but uh, the entire loop was shut down because all the power was out. So they had every every pump, every generator that was within a you know a two day drive was was engaged down at the city pumping this water out. They had Kenny Construction had a relationship with the uh, with the administration at the time, and they were hired on a uh, a time material basis to drive uh, um, drop shafts down to try to uh, access the the tunnels and close this thing off uh, either through bulkheading or uh, they even tried the old. Uh, method uh, from the Navy of uh, dumping uh, uh, mattresses in to try to uh, clog the source uh, of, of the uh, breach uh, in the river. And ultimately, they were able to stop the inflow and uh, got the, the water to stop coming in. And then it was just a pumping operation. They pumped it, uh, uh, pumped it out, uh, out through the sewers and uh, ultimately uh, got things dried out. Since that time, um, they have required every uh, building in the, in the loop to uh, bulkhead off the uh, access to these freight tunnels uh, with waterproof bulkheads so that this can occur again. Unbelievable. I feel like that is a forgotten story of the city of Chicago. You know, people talk about the Great Fire. Uh, it's more than well over more than 100 years ago. They don't talk about the flood nearly as much. Yeah. Um, you have been developing in the city of Chicago for many years. You know, I just kind of just uh, as a kind of closing topic, many people are scared of developing in Chicago or, you know, you see lots of people flocking to do developments in the Sun Belt states. And there's varying reasons why, from rising taxes to the challenges of the ARO to, uh, you know, avoiding uh, hitting hitting a, a flooded area, um, you know. But you've been doing it successfully for for a long time. Do I don't do you do developments outside of Chicago? And you know, if not, why are you continue to uh, be so focused in on our great city here? Well, um, we have done some development outside, but uh, uh, limited. Um, we we did some uh, government leased uh, properties, uh, Sacramento, Lodi, New Jersey, but um, they were uh, smaller projects. There is a general um, movement of the development community to um, cities that uh, would seem to be more friendly to development uh, and, and more welcoming. You know, the city of Chicago, we have our challenges, uh, not the least of which is is that tax burden that I referred to. But 
the city of Chicago is still the biggest market between the coasts. And uh, if you're a um, if you're a graduate coming out of the Big Ten, you, with all due respect to these these cities that are good, you're going to want to live in Chicago over Indianapolis or Fort Wayne or even for that matter Madison. So it has it's it's still the big city it is the uh the head of the midwest and you have uh the workforce that wants to live here that drives the need for housing you have uh you know until the pandemic related shutdowns you have some of the greatest culture uh and entertainment and and dining uh within the city and so those things are still very very viable we have challenges uh that have to be addressed, and I think that they can be addressed because what's drives what drives neighborhoods like <clears throat> the Fulton Market is the desire of companies to move back down to the city for that very reason. Is this is where the workforce wants to live? This is where they will continue to come, and the the threat or um, prediction of uh, the city collapsing because people will move out is way exaggerated. Um, so when it's the the number one city in the market, there's still plenty of opportunity for development. Just a lot tougher. I love it. I love it. I'm a big believer in the city, and so it's great to be around another city optimist. And, you know, we're, we're recording this March 3rd, and I yesterday was the first nicer day we've had in some time. And I went downtown. I was just telling my wife this morning. I was like, man. It's just good to be downtown, people everywhere, great energy downtown. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's why, because it's awesome. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's everybody says it's a great city uh, 10 months out of the year. If we could do something about January and February, it'd be perfect. But, hey, you know. It is what it is. Well, Mike, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks for telling us about all your experiences and for and about structured development and all the great projects that you're doing. Great. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Uh, enjoy your podcast. Keep up the good work. Thanks a lot. Thank you. This publication is intended for general information purposes only and does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. The listener should consult with legal counsel to determine how laws or decisions discussed herein apply to the listener's specific circumstances. 